Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Underserved, the podcast for the rest of the technology industry. I'm your host, Andrew Jelina. If you are sick of startup worship, gadget worship, and rehash tech news, then this is the podcast for you. Today, I'm interviewing Jared Taylor, a self-taught software developer from Florida. Jared decided to learn programming, and he was off to the races. Let's hear about how he got started and what he's into nowadays. I had a job when I was a teenager doing video production work, and it was it was at a, a print shop of all places. And they had a, a client come in and say, hey, I want to make a, a video CD. And I thought, well, I've got some time. I can figure out how to do that. How hard can it be, right? So I took over a back room, made a big green screen, bought a bunch of equipment, got the cameras, got a, uh, I want to say it was a titanium power book at the time, and final cut, and just kind of went to town. And over a couple of weeks, <laughs> we made the CD. And the client came back and said, you know, I really wish you could like click around on the video and make it do things. Which I was thinking, well, that's not a video CD. <laughs> so I got a copy of Macromedia Director and figured out how to make an interactive video. Then they came back later and said, well, we want to do a website for this and kind of a brochure sales thing. So we did that. And I just kept kind of, you know, snowballing and snowballing and making bigger and bigger stuff. And then one day, the guy I was working for had a, a buddy of his out in California who was doing a startup, and they were having a hard time putting everything together, and he told me about it. And I said, well, no, you're doing it wrong. And <laughs> went over to his whiteboard and drew out how the whole thing should work. And he said, okay, I'm going to send this to him. Do you mind? No, no, go ahead. And they called me back the next day and said, we want to fly you out to California and have you help us do this. And I had no idea how to actually work with a whole team of other programmers or any of that stuff. Yeah, and it just kind of snowballed from there. That was the, the first startup I ever worked for. And eventually it went kaputs. And I ended up doing R&D work for the company that was funding the whole thing for about a year. And that was fun. But, you know, nothing ever got released. So I stopped doing that and started doing freelance stuff again and got a few jobs at bigger companies and things like that. One day I realized I was working remote in Atlanta and it cost the same to live at the beach. So I called up a recruiter down here in South Florida and said, hey, give me a job. And he did. And I think 11 days later, I had moved down and I was talking to Richard about the same time and said, hey, I'm going to move to the beach. Why don't you quit your job and come do this? So he did. <laughs> and uh, while he was here looking for a job, Colin found him. So he recommended me. Nice. Yeah. And the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. So after like HTML, what programming or scripting languages did you pick up? Well, Macromedia Lingo was the first one. It did HTML, CSS kind of stuff back in the, you know, font tag table days. Then some light JavaScript after that, dabbled in a couple back end languages. Ruby was the first one I started getting actual work for. And since I've been doing project work, it's it's just kind of one after the other. You know, everybody wants something different. But after you learn the first five or six, they're all kind of the same. Do you have a preference for more like script style languages versus compiled or? Uh, lately, I've really been liking Elixir. It runs on the Erlang VM, the Beam, they call it. You know, that was designed back in the 80s by uh, Ericsson to run phone switch boxes. And the problem they were trying to solve was people are going to be calling from 
all over the place. We don't know who they're calling. We don't know how many boxes we're going to have to route the call through. We can never shut these things down. And they don't have a lot of uh, hardware resources. And it's we have to keep long-running connections. And if you think about that, that translates to today's web apps. (laughs) You know, you don't know how many servers you're going to run things on. A lot of the time you're doing long-running connections with things, you know, web sockets and that sort of stuff. Uh, but Erlang as a language really kind of sucks for all of that. So Elixir is basically another language that compiles down and runs on the Erlang VM. And it's kind of interoperates with Erlang code. But it's a really, really nice language to work in. And because they don't have to worry about the VM, they spend all their time writing nice tools for it. So how old is that VM? Erlang? Um, I want to say mid-80s. Wow. Yeah, it's it's been around <laughs> and it's still running a lot of the phone switch boxes today. And then Elixir's fairly new. It's it's a few years old. It was one of the uh, Rails core team members kind of branched off and did it. Has anyone else tried to kind of update using the Erlang VM and put languages on top of it? Or is Elixir kind of the first serious attempt in a long time? I think Elixir kind of kicked the whole thing off. It's the the first one I had heard of. There's a few others now. Even though Elixir is really based around doing web stuff, there's another project called Nerves that will run the Erlang VM either on a little little small copy of Linux or right on the hardware for doing um, embedded device stuff. So you can like you know get a Raspberry Pi and run Elixir code on it through this Nerves framework. So it does some neat stuff. I was actually. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to one of the Elixir frameworks and thought it'd be a good idea if everything is fast enough to be able to use it to program audio signal processing and do guitar effects pedals and things. But nothing ever came with it or of it. We'll see. Maybe one of these days. So what would you say your favorite IDE or editor is these days? Uh, depends on what I'm doing. Xcode, obviously, for doing iOS work because it, it ties in really, really well. And I've been using VS Code lately for most everything else, um, mostly just because a lot of the tools tie into it. You know, if you're writing a, a JavaScript app or something, all your linters are, are built for VS Code now. So that's easy. Um, but Panic is coming out with a new version of Coda pretty soon that I have high hopes for. They always do a really good job with UI stuff. And really, all I, all I want out of a IDE is, can I debug in it? Can I run a script on my own? And does it do proper syntax highlighting and uh, what else? Find in project. That's about it. Yeah, find in project's always a big one. Yeah. Like I want to find everywhere this thing's touched. Show me where it's defined. Yeah, that's that's the one actually that throws me off from using, you know, Vim or something like that. Because even though there are find in project tools you can use with it, it's such a pain in the butt to go from that tool to actually editing something I'm looking at and keeping track of it all, you know, that kind of stuff. And any other tools, either free or paid, that you find indispensable for doing programming? AirPods. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's you know kind of my own little isolation booth, and then I'm you know I spend half my day in meetings anyway, so it's it's always nice to put on a pair of headphones and be able to pace back and forth. Uh, other than that, lots of screen real estate. I'm always going between. I, I think my minimum is probably a 5K display, and at various times I've got. Other ones hooked up to it. I've been playing around with the new um, Mac OS and iOS. Their beta versions now have a thing called Sidecar where you can wirelessly use your iPad as a second display, which means 
you know, the keyboard that's built into it and all that stuff works. So I can use that as like a, a sofa laptop and go do some programming work on that while I'm sitting on the sofa, but have it all running on my computer at my desk. Ah, so so they so they finally have a touch display for for Max. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you just need a thousand dollar iPad. Yeah, and little tiny fingers to be able to touch anything. But uh, <laughs> I use it with the mouse though. It works pretty well. The screen resolution's not that high, but if you're doing, you know, full full screen kind of stuff, it, it works well. My kids like that pencil stylus that comes with the iPads now. Yeah. It works well. If you're running Mac OS like in the display, nothing is set up as a touch target. Like I mean, you can tap on things and make it work, but everything is really designed for, you know, the, the one pixel mouse clicking device. Yeah. So menus are kind of hard. Scrolling works pretty well. I've, I've now caught myself multiple times reaching across my desk and trying to scroll up, you know, with my finger to move an email or something. I've got fingerprints everywhere. If you had a uh, hundred hours free to learn something right now, what would you want to learn? I would go back and study playing guitar properly. It's one of those things I find that it helps me think about things in a different way. And the more I do it, the better I am at making connections between things I usually wouldn't see. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of learning things outside of your you know primary career focus kind of stuff just because i you know you don't see it right away but eventually everything kind of connects yeah i've seen a lot of folks with two crossovers in particular with programming one music like i've seen a lot of folks that are musicians and are into coding or code for a living but music is a very serious hobby for them i'm usually playing like guitar bass keyboard Mm -hmm. That sort of stuff. And also uh, math majors, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of folks that start off there and then, you know, just end up doing programming for parts of their classes and then diving deep into CS. And uh, then the the math major stuff usually takes a backseat after a while. Yeah, I, I think it's the same same kind of logical thinking. Computer science degrees are probably a lot more profitable than math degrees. <laughs> just a guess. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah, Although think, uh, neither you nor I have a CS degree and we're doing all right. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and and after talking with a lot of people that have come straight out of college, I am still shocked at how how many things they don't teach them that they should. You know, version control. How do you not learn that? Honestly, when, when I was in college, there was uh, the CS courses that I did take, it, you know, data structures, algorithms, um, yep you know, how to kind of, you know, get an app that thinks and stores stuff and serves it up and so forth and some user interface things. But yeah, there was there was short shrift given to version control. Now, back then, like, you know, it's like CVS and VCS and, you know, relatively crappy ones. But yeah, you know, like you and I have been working with an intern and we've had to kind of show him the ropes of uh, GitHub. And I think that'll Mm -hmm. serve him well. When he when he hits the workforce upon graduation, that becomes your resume later too. your GitHub profile. Yeah. Yeah. Every single one I've seen come across has had a GitHub link in it. That's yeah. Another thing I've seen with a lot of uh, good developers is that software development is kind of a, a hobby to them as well. They tend to build their own things or experiment with things or they would be programming whether or not they did it for a living do you have any kind of interesting side projects or things that you liked working on over the last several years that you kind of did on your own oh i've always got at least half a dozen going on 
it, it never stops. One of the longer running ones is I've been processing stock market data and having it identify investments and things like that for me. Uh, I've done it. <laughs> it's actually a good evolution of languages story. So the first version of it I wrote, I did it in Ruby. It took, oh gosh, I want to say about a week to process a full day's worth of market data, which, you know... <laughs> Falls behind pretty enough. quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Ruby is, is, it's got a global interpreter lock and, you know, it's not the fastest thing around. So I redid it. I did it as a, a node app thinking, hey, the evented thing will, you know, allow me to do lots of things at once. And ran into another whole slew of bottlenecks, but it could do a day's worth of data in about two days. Since then, I have switched it over to Elixir and used some of their kind of in-memory database stuff. You know, again, just trying to avoid bottlenecks where I can. And now it does a whole day's worth in about 15 minutes. So, yeah, it's gone from a week down to about 15 minutes. And it's a big part of that. And and one of the great things I learned being able to do this was how to scale something, even if you just have one machine doing it. So, you know, Ruby will be able to do basically one thing at a time. Or you, I mean, if you get into threading, it gets way overcomplicated for what it is. Node can still do one thing at a time, but it can do something else while you know, waiting around, which is nice. Elixir fires off, they call them processes, but they're, you know, they're very, very, very tiny processes and can do, I don't know, I, I think I regularly do 40 million of them at a time while I'm doing this stuff. So for a language that, you know, isn't really compiled down like C would be or something that you would think would be really good at this stuff ends up being really good at it because it scales out so well. Now, normally like the old days when we were scaling, we'd say like number of processors minus one for the number of threads or something like that, you know, in order yeah. one to use for context switching and then the rest to use for actually doing stuff. How does it, how, how are you chunking it out into 40 million things and <laughs> yeah. how, how does that all get coalesced? So this is part of the the brilliance of the Erlang VM is they they didn't know what kind of hardware they were going to run. It. So when you run the VM, it picks up what kind of hardware it has access to. So for example, on the I'm running all this on a little Mac Mini. It's got uh, six cores and hyper threading. So you usually think, well, that that means twelve, right? But the VM knows what the hardware is and has its own scheduler. And you just fire off as many processes as you want to. It handles the scheduling for you. So I don't ever really have to think about how many things am I doing at once. I just queue up everything and let it chug through it. Um, and the whole thing, is, it, it's like the actor model. So it's, it's all functional programming. And there's, it's all copying data everywhere and stuff like that, which is definitely a bottleneck you have to think about. But you don't really get into memory management or, you know, losing objects or race conditions or anything like that. Okay, so it, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, a lot of it, it, it just does for you. And I've actually experimented uh, locally, plugging in different computers and then just starting up the app on all of them and connecting them as kind of like a, a mesh network where they all work together. And that is something that does almost out of the box. I was very surprised at how easy that was. So just it, it allocates all that 40 million yep. little processes across however many boxes you have in your little cluster. Exactly. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you run into bottlenecks with you know, how do you store everything when it comes back and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think that's always going to be a problem. 
Underserved is fortunate to be sponsored by Syrinx, the developer-founded, developer-run software consulting company. Syrinx provides bolt-on software development capacity to accelerate your software projects. Syrinx works with your team and your methodology, on-site or off-site, to deliver on-time and on-budget. They work in any technology stack. React, Angular, Java, .NET, Python, front-end, back-end, NoSQL, MySQL, any SQL you can come up with, they have experts. You need architects, developers, QA folks, project managers, analysts, data scientists. Syrinx can help everywhere in the software development lifecycle, anywhere in the United States. Syrinx also does complete outsourced software project development if you need a turnkey end-to-end solution or if you just need an individual resource to fill a development gap. With 100% of their resources onshore and a 20-year track record of success, you can trust Syrinx to get it right the first time. You can reach them today at syrinx.com or 888-579-7469. That is 888-5-SYRINX. Expand your software development bandwidth at syrinx.com. Now, are you going to get real brave and hook this up to some sort of automated trading system with uh, money sitting in it? <laughs> I, I have thought about doing that. I've experimented with it. I'm not a big fan of it because I'm not doing high-frequency trading. Yeah. So this is more buy and hold for about a month kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it looks for a lot of kind of momentum patterns with different different stocks. And basically right now I have it like recommending things and saying, hey, we found this. You'll want to take a look at it. We know you're holding this. This It's about time to get rid of it, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll approve all of that. And I'll also go in and and look for, you know, certain events and things that are happening that I can, you know, allocate resources to and take advantage of. So I, you know, I don't know how much good it would do to completely automate the system if it's something I don't, you know, I only sit down and make trades, you know, either weekly or monthly. Plus having that choke point is kind of nice. <laughs> yes. Instead of coming home being like, where did my five grand go? Yeah. <laughs> Sweating the whole time about everything. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever, uh, you ever seen the movie Pie? No, Darren Arnofsky. It's a guy who's a mathematician, realizes that there's certain patterns in nature, like a Fibonacci sequence, and then starts seeing that this pattern is possibly applied to the stock market. So he goes and tries to iterate and iterate and iterate in order to basically solve the stock market and be able to know, like, as a ticker's going by, what's going to, what it's going to do. He... (laughs) I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but uh, he goes he goes a little nuts and people start trying to hunt him down. Yeah, I was just thinking I've got a whole stack of books that would argue with all of that. Yeah. <laughs> I like it, though. Interesting. So uh, do you do any uh, meetups down there in Florida or any sort of in-person uh, programmer type networking or online stuff? Or I started to. I did that for a while when I lived up in uh, West Palm Beach. But... The industry down here is basically, you know, tourism, or I think as Anthony Bourdain said, it's we sell sunshine and cocaine. That's pretty much Florida. <laughs> so yeah, there's not that much going on, you know, tech wise. I mean, there, you know, you go to meetups and there's like four people there having coffee. So yeah, we, we we've been we've been kind of unusually blessed up here. There's there's a lot of activity all over the place and all over the board. Yeah, good schools. Um, that's yeah. the key. Yeah. That, that definitely helps. You know, there's a good concentration of engineers like in Boston proper and 128 and even all the way out to 495. So you can usually find some well-populated meetups. 
but your mileage may vary depending on whether you're looking for tech content or a lot of them have a lot of folks searching for jobs and so forth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a little, little bit the of everything. Nice thing about Florida is a lot of the conferences end up coming down here at some point because it's, you know, you, there, there are more hotel rooms in Orlando because of the theme parks than I think anywhere else in the world right now. Hmm. Like more than Vegas, more than, you know, more than any of them. And it's always nice. You can come down in the middle of winter and it's warm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think I saw Disney just built another tower in Coronado Springs or something like that. I just, it boggles my mind that they could, (laughs) they would need more hotel rooms. (laughs) It's, you know, it's always full though. I mean, you can go down any day of the week, any month of the year and it's just packed and they're building more and more parks. Uh, Universal Studios, I think, is up to three or four now. Huh. Yeah, is that Star Wars thing open? Uh, I, don't, I think so. I haven't been in a few weeks. And yeah, you're a big Disney fan. You have like the Florida resident. I go whenever I want. Pass. Well, I have that because it's cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I have like four hundred something dollars for all the parks all year, no blackout days, and parking and discounts and whatever you buy. I mean, Jesus, the parking at, pays for that. Yeah. If you look at just, you know, what it costs to go for a day, that's that's a weekend's worth. So if I'm there more than twice a year, it's worth it. <laughs> and then w- when you go, what do you do? Like uh, drink your way around the world? Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. That's <laughs> Epcot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I visit all the others. The food's good. Chef Art Smith's Homecoming is a, a excellent restaurant in downtown Disney or what Disney Springs, whatever they call it now, Trader Sam's uh, Grog Grotto Tiki Bar at the Polynesian Resort. It's a great one. So it's usually food and drink. I'd go to Universal for the, the rides and stuff, but it's always a two-hour wait for every roller coaster, which I just, I can't justify that. That's yeah, and the, <laughs> the skip the line pass there is is pretty steep, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah, everything is really there. It's well, except the season passes or the yearly passes. And I don't know if this is just a, a Florida resident thing or not, but it's like 120 bucks or so per day to get into a park or uh, 130 or $140 or something like that for a year long pass for all the parks, all the universal ones. But you got to show a Florida driver's license. I think so. I know for the Disney one you do. Yeah, and I, and they had what was the other deal? It was like you could pay fourteen dollars a month, basically, no interest or anything. It would just they'd spread it out, however that math worked. I, I would pay that just to be able to go and eat when I'm driving through Florida or driving through Orlando. So besides uh, programming, going to Disney and playing the occasional guitar, what else do you do for fun? Uh, I used to be into to doing a lot of sports car racing stuff, but I'm I'm too old and out of shape to do that anymore. Unfortunately, like, uh, like, like the Miatas or like what? Well, I went and learned to do it at the BMW racing school. Uh, so that was Zim threes at the time. And okay. I got into Porsches after that, uh, had a Boxster. I'm in a 911 now and I, I can't go back. I, I just, I can't imagine having any other car. <laughs> They're so much fun. Have you driven a Tesla? Uh, I have tried it. It, it was very heavy. It felt like for me and big. They are heavy. Yeah. Uh, my okay. mind's like 6,000 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. The acceleration is great, but it's just the, the weight in the cornering build it for me. I, I want basically a street legal go-kart. That's my <laughs> ideal car. I don't yeah. need a roof. I don't need doors. I'll wear goggles if I have to. I want a street legal go-kart. 
No right, one so will, you, will sell me one though. So you're a 2019 Steve McQueen. <laughs> I wish <laughs> they gave him one of the, uh, with the nine seventeens. They gave him a street legal one. I couldn't believe yep. it. Yeah. Man, I can't imagine driving that thing around. I mean, the, the no speed bumps or anything for sure, but I, I, I heard they did, uh, when the drivers would get in them, they said it was like you'd get in and they would light the fuse on the back and then you just hope you don't die. Yep. Like, huh, huh, all right. Have fun with that. <laughs> yeah. We, as a company, we used to have a membership to this auto club where you could kind of take out, you know, fractional rentals of all the cars they had in their collection. They had like Ferraris yeah. and Bikinis. And honestly, one of my favorite cars, it was an air cooled Porsche. I forget mm-hmm. which one it was. It was like a, 996 maybe i don't know it, it looks like the uh, 911 but it was air cooled well the the 911s were air cooled until late 90s yeah, so i think the 993 was the last one okay. that was water cooled definitely okay. water cooled in 07 yeah that, was, that 997 would have been the model year or the model then yeah there was a convertible one uh it was just it was really fun to drive just mm-hmm. well-balanced car um yeah it it wouldn't you know, take off like a slingshot, quite like the Lamborghini, but it was no. just a really fun car to drive. Yeah, the uh, the new ones do take off like that. <laughs> they have the new 992 model one they've got now. Uh, they only showed off the the S version of it. And, you know, of course, they lie about all their, their factory numbers and everything. I'm assuming for insurance. But all the people testing them, they'll get on the regular S version and do zero to 60 in just under three seconds. Are they doing anything like uh, boosting one or more wheels with an electric motor? Or Not yet. They have made room for it, and they've been racing some hybrids. And the, their hybrid theory is, screw the mileage, just add to the power. Yeah. So they'll put an engine driving the back wheels, and then an electric motor for each front wheel. Yeah, okay. Yeah. and uh, Essentially making it a hybrid all-wheel drive? Yeah, pretty much. You know, and they'll say, well, you can drive it in electric only mode for, I don't know, like 70 miles or something before it gives out. Mm-hmm. Or you can just crank everything up and, you know, have 900 horsepower. I think there's a guy in our building that has, like, what's, what do they call the four door one there? Uh, Panamera. Yeah, I think he has a Panamera that's the plug-in hybrid that plugs up front, yeah. I imagine, where the battery and motors are. I see him plugged in once in a while, and I'm like, all right, you don't really need this. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not at, And they put, you know, you get the thing with like a twin-turbo V8 in one of those anyway. I, I can't imagine. that. That's just, it's probably just a sales thing. You know, hey, look, we're doing hybrids. I know the, the European Union has been getting all over them because they came out with emissions laws based on the wheelbase size of the car huh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so of course it's kind of odd and, and argued and said well it should be emissions per horsepower that would make more sense because then we can try and make our more expensive high horsepower engines have less emissions and let that kind of trickle down into all the you know millions and millions of cars volkswagen is selling and they said no it's got to be on wheelbase which means a 911 has to put out the same emissions as, you know, like a little tiny Jetta, which huh. just, you know, or they give them big fines, which I think Ferrari just said, fine, we'll just eat the fines and up our prices. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said for that approach. Yeah. <laughs> and they did. I think they've like added another $100,000 to their base level, whatever mid-engine V8 they're doing now. 
until they fail to sell one one year. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was uh, Enzo's theory. Make one less than you can sell, which I can't argue with. <laughs> yeah. That uh, that movie's coming out soon. Uh, the Ford versus Ferrari. That looks interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen the the documentaries and things on that. That, that was I, I saw the ad for the movie and I thought, I think they're kind of overselling part of what happened. Because they'll say, oh, we've got, you know, however many months to build a car to beat Ferrari. I think it took them like three years because they they brought the GT40s to Le Mans and just, they, you know, they were wrecking all over the place the first few times. Yeah. Finally, they beat Ferrari, did a run of, you know, a couple of years where they won everything. And uh, then Porsche came in for the first time in the top class and just blew everybody away and then got banned. And now they don't have that class anymore. I really like those uh, anniversary GT40s they came out with like in the mid 2000s. And that's the only yes, like hypercar, especially American, that they came out, they were kind of expensive, they dropped in value, and then all of a sudden started appreciating again, especially if you had like heritage colors or red with the white Le Mans stripes, and now the things are worth more than they ever were. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's I think part of that's with the ones they replaced them with don't look like the old ones anymore. So if you want a, you know, relatively modern car that looks and mostly sounds like an old GT40, that's it. Yeah. What a great idea, though. You know, put a big pickup truck engine in the back of a little tiny car. Add a supercharger. Yeah. <laughs> what more can you ask for? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love one. I I, uh, I used to go up to Road Atlanta, all the races there. And some people had some of the old GT40s there for a few years. And man, they would crank those things up and you could hear them on the other side of the track. Yeah, it was great. It smelled terrible. Yeah. But, yeah. I've, I've heard the new ones and the, the supercharger wine. It sounds just like the GT500, you know, Shelby Mustangs that you hear, you know, yeah. as, soon, as soon as you stomp on it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's one of the problems people had with uh, the new boxers, actually. They cut them down to four cylinders and put turbos on everything. And they don't sound good anymore. You know, you crank them up and it sounds like a Subaru, which, you know, not knocking Subaru. I've got one of those too, but they don't sound great. <laughs> kind of tinny. Yeah, there's a bunch of guys running around up here with the WRXs and uh, can exhausts. Oh, yeah. Now we just got the SUV because we had the whole stuff. Uh, yeah, and I didn't want to, you know, spend $80,000 on one of the Porsche ones or the Mercedes or anything. Because yeah. it's an SUV, right? Put boxes in the back and as much as you think it's going to be a sports car, it's just not. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> well, I don't want to tie you up for too long today. Any other parting words, things you want to share? Or parting words for people that are interested in getting into development? Uh, don't be afraid to throw away code. I swear I throw out 90% of everything I write. It's fine. That, that's yeah. my parting advice. <laughs> you, you, you end up iterating. You, yeah. know, you just got just to plan on it. Yeah, or or I guess write code that can be deleted later, because if you don't refactor, you end up with all kinds of problems, and I think that's the the root of tech bloat. So write things that you can delete when you refactor, and don't be afraid to do it. Well, thank you very much, Jared, for taking some time to share with me today and to try out the inaugural over Skype podcast. I'll talk to you soon.